Turn with me in your Bibles this morning uh, to the epistle of 1 John, 1 John chapter 1. I'd like to read the entire chapter, but this morning we'll focus our attention on the second half of it, verses 5 through 10. 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word, useful, profitable for our instruction in righteousness. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the Word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Turn with me now in your Psalter hymnals to the back, to page 9. I'd like to read responsively uh, Lord's Day 2. Here we begin the first part of the Heidelberg Catechism, which deals with sin or guilt. And we learn something in these three questions and answers about the function or the purpose of God's law in our Christian life. I will read the questions if you would please respond with the answers. Question 3, how do you come to know your misery. The law of God tells me. Question four, what does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Question five, can you live up to all this perfectly? No, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Well, brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've no doubt noticed, I'm sure, that most people today recoil at the topic of human sin. 
And that is perhaps especially the case today in our postmodern society that desperately tries to flatten morality to the point that no one, they say, may claim to have an exclusive handle on the truth. Uh, we're told through every media venue that exists today that everyone's truth is his or her own. Everyone's personal beliefs and lifestyles are equally valid. And no one, no one gets to tell another person that they are wrong or living in sin. I'm sure you've noticed that. And it really shouldn't surprise us that our world adopts this way of thinking, our world in which the devil has temporary sway. It doesn't surprise us that people in our unbelieving society don't want to hear about the topic of sin. They don't want to hear about God's law. But what we should be surprised at and certainly grieved at is that the topic of sin is so hated, so avoided, so abhorred in the church. Reality is that many churchgoers, even pastors, believe that getting into detail about human sin and iniquity is far too morbid, far too depressing to be useful in the church. One popular televangelist was asked by an interviewer whether he ever uses the word sinners in his sermons. And without hesitation, he responded, no, I never really thought about it. Most people, I think, uh, come into church and they know what they're doing wrong already. And when I get them into the pew, I want to tell them they can change. They can do a little bit better. And that's more common, sadly, in the church than you might think. It's, this is not just the domain of the self-help, prosperity gospel churches. Many so-called evangelical Christians today would have us stop focusing on sin so much, lighten up a little bit. After all, we're all basically good people, aren't we? Even if we've messed up a few times in our lives, we already know it. We don't need another sermon on that topic. But our passage from 1 John this morning, as well as uh, Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism, tell us just the opposite, don't they? And they warn us about the danger, the extreme danger of either denying or playing down the reality of ongoing sin in our lives. These authorities urge us to face the mirror of God's law, which reflects God's righteousness and exposes our sin and misery. And what I hope you see this morning as we, we study 1 John chapter 1 is that God's Word tells us, instructs us, that if we are to have the comfort and fellowship of, with God and with one another, if we're to enjoy the benefits of the gospel, the good news, then we have to live honestly before the mirror of God's law. Notice with me three things this morning, that God's law, first of all, reflects the righteousness of God, His holiness, and the standard that we are to follow. Secondly, God's law reflects our sin and our misery, our need for a Savior. And then finally, God's law reflects the perfect obedience and righteousness of Jesus for us. Well, you notice as we read 1 John here that the apostle begins his letter to the church by trying to discredit a false idea that apparently had been circulating among the churches. And the false idea was this that we can have fellowship with God 
and yet live in darkness, in sin. The false idea circulating in the church was this, that we can have constant and joyful communion with God and with one another and still live a lifestyle of iniquity. And John writes to the church, in part at least, to expose that false idea, to bring it into the light, to show how foolish a mindset that really is. And he says to the church, if that's your perspective, then you don't really know God as He's revealed Himself in His Word and in His law. You really don't know Him if that's what you think you can do. Live a life of darkness and yet still have fellowship with God. Why? Because John says, the message that I heard from the mouth of Jesus Himself as we walk the dusty roads of Judea, the message I'm proclaiming to you, brothers and sisters, is this. Verse 5, God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. Well, boys and girls, what does it mean, do you think, that God is light? That God is light. What does it mean that He's light? Does it mean that God is brilliantly bright like the sun so that whenever we come into contact with Him, we need to wear shades? Not quite. Not quite. The Bible does tell us that God's glory and His majesty are brilliant, but that's not what John's getting at here. When Jesus told John and His disciples that God is light, He meant something closer to what the Psalms tell us about God. The Psalms talk a lot about the light of God. Psalm 36 verse 9 tells us this, that God is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. What the psalmist means is that God is the source and the provider of our life. And if we are to have any knowledge, any, any wisdom or understanding, it comes from Him. He's the source. Psalm 104 tells us that God wraps Himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. Here the psalmist is reminding us that, that God is God and we are not that there's a big difference between the Creator and His creatures. God is light. He's the, he's the wise Creator. He's the source of all wisdom and knowledge, and we are His creatures. And we can only have life, we can only gain wisdom if we live under His care, if we live under His Word, His law. But there's another important way that God is light, and it has to do with His character. It has to do uh, with His holiness. God is light because He's the foundation and the perfect source of all goodness and purity. He's holy, utterly set apart and pure in who He is. And so, by declaring that God is light, John is immediately reminding us not only about the character of God, but he's also telling us something about our responsibility as His people. There's a refrain repeated over and over again in both the Old and the New Testaments, be holy as God is holy. Part of being the children of God is that we are to delight in the things that God delights in. He is light, and so we are to delight in those things that are characterized by the light. We ought to delight in holiness and obedience and purity because we are children of our Heavenly Father. And so there's a lived-out aspect 
to being children of God. We cannot just claim to live in the light or claim to have fellowship with God. We must demonstrate it in our holy, set-apart living. But where do we look? Where do we go to discover how to live, how to walk in the light of God's holiness? We read from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2, and it reminds us that it's the law of God. It's God's law that reflects, sort of like a mirror, the righteousness and the purity and the holiness of God. As we study God's good commandments that He reveals to us in His Word, God reveals something of Himself to us. He shows us His character, and we learn what the holy God of heaven and earth requires of us as His people that we should walk in the light as He is in the light. And Jesus Himself taught us, in summary, what the law of God teaches us. Jesus Himself said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So when we gaze into the mirror of God's law, What do we see? We see a standard. We see a rule there for us, a standard for our living. And that law reflects, it makes clear to us, not only the righteous standard of God, but what is necessary for us to have fellowship with Him, to live in the light of God's fellowship. But secondly, when we gaze into the perfect mirror of God's law, we see something else. We see something else. Whether you are young or old, there are times, usually first thing in the morning after you wake up, when your bedroom or bathroom mirror is not your friend. And we get up in the morning and we yawn and we rub the sleep out of our eyes and we gaze into that piece of glass in front of us and maybe scream a little bit. Because staring back at us is someone with wrinkles and blemishes and dark circles under their eyes, imperfections of all sorts. And we stand there in front of our mirror in private agony because there they are, our physical blemishes and our visible and close-up vivid detail. Can't escape it. That's bad enough. But in even greater greater detail, the mirror of God's law exposes, it brings into the light our sin and the misery that comes from our sin. We read that together in Lord's Day 2. How do we come to know our misery? How do we come to understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior? The law of God tells us. The law of God makes it very clear. It shows us in vivid detail the many ways we fail to live up to God's standard, to love God and our neighbors. God's law, as it were, pulls away the mask that we might be tempted to hide behind. It exposes our sinful desires, our thoughts, our actions. And why is that the case? Well, precisely because the standard that we ought to meet as God's people is the holiness of God Himself, the law which reflects God's righteousness cannot help but show us our sin and our misery and our darkness in comparison. So we have a problem. We have a dilemma when we come uh, to the law of God. 
It's interesting that John writes to the, to the church to give them assurance. He writes to give them comfort. He wants them to know the assurance of their salvation, uh, the joy of fellowshipping with God, and yet he is also telling us, he's telling his audience that it's impossible for us to have fellowship with God while living in the darkness of sin. So, we have a problem. We have a dilemma. To fellowship with God means living in the light, not living in ongoing sin. To live in the darkness means walking in sin and death. And so, what do we do? What should our response be when the mirror of God's law reflects our sin and our misery in darkness, things that make fellowship with Jesus Christ and with one another impossible? What should we do? I want you to notice from this passage two responses that this passage lays out for us as we encounter our sin and our misery as the law of God exposes it. And the first is this. First, we are called to be honest about our sinful condition and misery. We ought to be honest about our sinful condition and misery. We cannot hide from or deny our sin when the law of God exposes it. And that's exactly the tendency that John preaches against in verse 8. He preaches against the tendency to deceive ourselves about our sin. Look what he says in verse 8 here. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And this self-deception regarding sin comes in various forms, at least two I'd like to share with you. First, it comes in the claim that we have fully ceased from sinning. My father told me a story once about his uncle, my grandfather's brother, who uh, once came into my grandfather's kitchen, sat down, and said, you know, I'm becoming a little bit older now, and I think I've ceased from sinning. I think my days of sinning are over. And my grandfather, who by all accounts is a very quiet man, not one to speak up, simply sat there and looked at his brother and said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And I like to imagine that there was utter silence after that maybe a few crickets. But in fact, we fall into this way of thinking, don't we? We might think to ourselves, yes, I I believe in God, I enjoy fellowship with Him, and yet I've never been that conscious of my sin. I grew up in the Christian church, after all. I live a basically good and decent life. I've never harmed anyone. I love to serve others. And because of that, I really don't feel that I'm a sinner. I don't sense that I'm a sinner. I I don't sense the need, the urgency to repent or, or be converted or forgiven. And the Bible has very strong words in response to that attitude. If that's your view of yourself, when you compare your life to the law of God and to the righteous standard of God, and that's what you come up with, then you do not understand the nature of sin, and you know nothing of the truth. More than that, John reveals in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar, and His Word is not in us. 
If we do not realize that we have always needed the forgiveness of God from the very point of conception, that we make God out to be a liar. If we don't think that we need the forgiveness of God day after day after day after day, that we deceive ourselves. If we think that we have always been perfect or have somehow become perfect in our Christian walk, we deny God's truth. We deceive ourselves. If we deny what the Scriptures and the catechisms tell us about our inability to keep the law, in fact, our tendency, our inclination to hate God and neighbor, then we deceive ourselves. And we are suggesting that what God tells us in His holy word about our sin and our misery is a lie. Even worse, we are calling the righteous God of heaven and earth a teller of lies. And His Word has no place in our lives. The Word of Christ, then, has no place in our lives. To deceive ourselves into thinking that our sin and misery are a thing of the past is to deny the very reason for Christ coming to earth in the first place. It's to deny the purpose of Christ coming to earth, His death, His resurrection. Because the Word of God, the law of God, always convicts us of sin. It always makes us see the necessity of Jesus Christ and His cross and His atonement. And so if we claim that there is no sin in our lives, in our hearts, we prove that God's Word has no place in our hearts. And so we must be open, we must be honest about our sinful condition and not deny our sinful situation. Fellowship with God, with Jesus and with others requires honesty about our sin and misery before the law of God. But secondly, when we measure ourselves by the standards of God's law, uh, we also uh, need to respond in true confession and repentance. We ought to respond in true confession and repentance. And I dare say that confession is something that we do not do very well at. What we do quite often is tack on a very quick confession of sins at the end of our prayers. And forgive my sins for Jesus' sake, amen. Without even a thought about the specific ways that we have transgressed God's law on a daily basis. But that's what true confession really involves. True confession acknowledges the full range of ways in which we have sinned against our holy God. And, and how honestly, how openly we confess our sins tells us a lot about how deeply rooted we are in the gospel. Because when the gospel has taken root in our lives deeply, we will see much sin, much evil in our lives that we will desire to confess because we want to honor and glorify our Savior. And so we're to spot, respond to uh, the law of God when it exposes our sin and misery with confession, open, honest, specific confession of sins. But also, we respond in heartfelt repentance. Repentance begins with the consent of our hearts that God's Word is true, that what God says about our human condition is true and that we need a Savior. Repentance means that we begin to hate our sin, despise it, be disgusted with it, 
hate it and turn around away from it and cling to God in faith. It's not just a thought. It's not just a word. Repentance is an action. It's played out in our daily lives. It involves hating sin on a daily basis by turning from it, seeking to live every part of our lives for the glory of God. Living in the light, living in repentance, is a full-time occupation. No one can say, I want fellowship with God, but then doesn't show any evidence in their life that it is God with whom they fellowship. No one eats junk food on a daily basis and still uh, retains the appearance of somebody who is in good shape. Even so, we cannot fellowship day by day with the darkness in unrepentant sin and still appear as if we walk in the light. Persistent and unrepentant sin is not the mark of a Christian who has been humbled by the law of God, and let none of us be deceived. God will by no means clear the guilty. And so God says to us, walk in the light. Give proof of your repentance by your daily walk, by the life that you live. And as you grieve over your sin, what will happen? Your life will take on a new character. You will grow by the Spirit. The Word of God will become your delight more and more. Godliness will attract you. Worldliness will disgust you. And you will long more and more to have fellowship with God's people. You will desire to use your gifts to serve Christ more and more. The Savior who has removed you from darkness into the marvelous light of His salvation. And so when the law of God exposes, brings into the light in vivid detail your sin and your misery, confess and repent of your sins and take comfort in knowing that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Well, we spent some time looking at what our response should be to the law of God, not only as it reflects the righteousness of God, but also as it exposes our sin and our misery. We can plainly see from the Scriptures, from the Catechism, uh, what we ought to do, but how can we possibly do it? How can we possibly do it? Maybe you've come into the sanctuary for worship this morning, and you are, you are desperately trying to live in the light. You are desperately trying to live in fellowship with God. Maybe you've come here this morning and you're doing your very best at confessing your sins and seeking to live a godly life. But when you turn away from the mirror of God's law, your conscience is still troubled. And feelings of hopelessness and fear have arisen in your life as you come face to face with your sin and unworthiness which the law exposes. When the shipwreck of your sin starts to rise to the surface of your lives, exposed to everyone, you might feel that fellowship with God, enjoying the light of His presence, just isn't possible for you. Well, there's good news here. 
Because the answer to how we can be restored to fellowship with God, how we can be restored to fellowship with one another, is right here in this passage in the second part of verse 7. John says, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. John goes on in in chapter 2, the first few verses here, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have a helper. We have a representative with the Father. Who's that? Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is, verse 2, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's the good news here. Our hope, our comfort as we stand before the mirror of God's law, our comfort is not that we can obey it at every point, but that someone has done it for us, God's Son, Jesus Christ, who lived and died in perfect obedience to the will of God, who is willing and able to cleanse us from all of our sin and misery. What we cannot do for ourselves, God provided Christ to do for us. That's good news. And that means that when we stand before the full-length mirror of God's law, we come face to face also with the glorious and comforting knowledge of the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Do you see then why we need the law of God? Do you see then why we need to continue to read it and preach it and commit it to memory? Do you see why we need to be correct, why we need to be right on the topic of human sin? Because if we're not, then we're still walking in darkness and we cannot be right about the truth of salvation in Jesus Christ. But when we are, with the conviction of our sin by the law, we come to know the glorious provision of Jesus. And that's why our passage can say in verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. What an amazing gospel promise that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins because He promised of old that He would. And in the obedience and the death of Jesus Christ, God Himself met the conditions necessary for our salvation. Jesus met the demands of God's law in our place. He was punished in our place so that, Paul says in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And so now, were God to refuse to forgive our sins, for Christ's sake, when we ask, He would be unjust. He would be unfaithful. But He is not. He is true to His character. He is faithful. He is just. And He has provided a remedy for our sins. And so our plea 
Our argument is Jesus Christ, Christ's righteousness in my place. And that means that now the law of God does not bring fear. It does not bring condemnation. We can meditate on God's law with comforted hearts because Christ is both the one who obeyed that law perfectly in our place as the ground of our salvation and because He is the one who removed the curse of the law, the teeth of the law on our behalf. And now the law as our teacher, as our tutor, still drives us to Christ, our provider, who meets all of our needs for salvation. And it teaches us that we have the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, who is giving us all the strength that we need for our new life of obedience. Now for us, who have been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, the law is not a burden anymore. But we can fulfill it in the strength of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God and to our great blessing. Praise God for His wonderful Word and for His dear Son, our Savior. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Your law reflects Your perfect holiness. It exposes our sin and our misery, and yet we know that we all need to confess that so that we can also receive the consolation and the comfort that we need and that You provide. In order to know the comfort of the gospel, we need to be made very uncomfortable with our sin and misery. We need to confess and repent of our sins so that we will understand that You accept us in full on account of Christ's righteousness alone. Help us to understand that the, that the comfort and fellowship that we seek with You and with one another will not come about by our own efforts at being good people, but rather that our obedience to Your law and our following of Jesus should be first and foremost a confession of all that Christ has done for us and in us, a confession that all of the blessings of the gospel are ours as we live in grateful obedience to You the God who has saved us, who is just and faithful to rescue us from our sins. Give us that comfort and assurance, we pray. Amen.